And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. I have my good friends, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital, and Dr. Michelle Mazier, who is the medical staff president at the hospital on the line. How are you, ladies? Great. I'm looking out my window, and it's a little cloudy, but it's been beautiful weather, so it makes you feel hopeful, doesn't it? It, it does, and it's uh, good that we can all get outside after being locked in all winter with this pandemic uh, continuing to uh, cause us problems all winter long. So it's it's nice to get outside, and hopefully you ladies are getting outside like I am. Are you? Uh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> At least on the weekends and when you get a break here and there. Um, so how are things going at the hospital? I know things are better. Uh, what do they look like today? So last time we talked, they were better, and now they're even better than before. So last time we talked, we had 19 inpatients that had COVID, and four of those were on ventilators, and we were awaiting one result. This today, we only have five patients with only one on a vent and two awaiting results. So that's dramatic improvement. The total deaths uh, last time were 279. Uh, we have had some deaths, so the total deaths, but, but for a whole month is 287, so approximately nine um, deaths. And then we, uh, of the patients that are in the hospital, three are not vaccinated, two are vaccinated, and one also has been boosted. DuPage County before was 203,000, Positive patients, now there's 207,000 positive patients. DuPage County deaths went from uh, 1,733 to 1,770. So again, the county continues to have deaths as well. The state had 3.01 million positive patients uh, last time. Now they're at 3.05 million positive patients. And state deaths went from 35,998 to 37,345. And for our always good news, we have discharged, last time was 2,850. To date, we are 2,891 patients who have been discharged from the hospital, and our recovery rate remains at 97%, which has been constant through this whole, whole pandemic. And that recovery rate is just for those hospitalized, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, Obviously, things are better than they were, and uh, current numbers, if you're at five today, the last time there were five inpatients was in October of last year, and then I think June and July of last year, you were down to five also, so you're about as low as as you've been in the last eight or nine months, Um, and I know you don't like to predict either one of you as it relates to is this pandemic ending or not, but you know, I always say when uh when the weather person says that there's a fifty percent chance of rain, that means it might rain and it might not, and I could have told them that. But do you have any gut for if if there's a good chance either of you that this may change to an endemic from a pandemic and and can you can you talk a little bit about um who determines whether a particular virus is in a 
in the pandemic, endemic, or epidemic stage? Uh, Rich, I can speak to that. So first of all, um, I'll give a few definitions. So epidemic, the definition of an epidemic is when you see an increase in case counts in one area. That becomes a pandemic when global numbers increase. And a pandemic is declared by the World Health Organization. Um, and that's the same governing body that then would determine a pandemic has become um, an endemic. And what endemic means is that uh, basically the easiest way to think about it is that the virus lives with us. We, we know it's here. We, see, we might see seasonal spikes. Um, a good example of that is the flu. The determination to go from pandemic to endemic is really multifactorial. And I think that although here in the United States we're seeing our case counts and our hospitalizations and our deaths go down, um, in other parts of the world, we're seeing some spikes, um, most likely due to Omicron. We've already experienced our Omicron uh, spike, but there are some other parts of the country that are still suffering. So I wish I could say that tomorrow they're going to declare it endemic, but I don't, I don't think we know the timeline for when that will happen. And I think the biggest risk to us being able to go to an endemic state is if, if a significantly um, different new variant were to arise. And that's the CDC, right, that in our country that's decides? The World Health Organization, and then that would trickle down to the CDC and then down to IDPH, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, I've read that there's a new subvariant of Omicron. Um, I think it's the BA2 var- subvariant. And, and everything I've read about it says it's very similar to the, the primary Omicron variant in that it's um, – easily transmittable and uh, the resulting disease doesn't seem to be as serious as some of the previous variants. So my question is, do we know yet whether people who had the primary Omicron variant have some resistance to the new subvariants? The first thing I would say is never say never. We learned that during COVID. Um, right now in the United States, that BA2 variant is really lingering around 4%. I think that's what I reported last month as well. So we haven't seen much of an increase in that specific variant here. Um, and the thought so far is that infection with the initial Omicron variant likely does provide some pretty strong protection against BA2. And, and you're right, BA2 is more infectious, less fatal. And we're just not seeing a rise in the number of cases here in the United States from BA2. Well, that's good news, I guess, if there's any good news there. Um, For the last month or two, uh, Pfizer's CEO has been on a rant. No, not a rant, but he keeps saying that um, they think that folks need a fourth dose. And I'm not exactly sure what he means by a fourth dose. I, I assume that means a second booster dose of uh, the Pfizer vaccine for those that that are Pfizer uh, Pfizer vaccinated um, and he's he's been saying that for a while and then this last week he's been saying it again that they really believe that a fourth dose is necessary for most individuals so my thought is if they're saying it I, I tend to believe it unless there are people that think it's all about money but if he's saying it, I'm going to say, yeah, we probably need a fourth dose. So my question is, isn't it important that the CDC approve that fourth dose like pronto so that we can continue to stay ahead of this thing? 
So I agree with you. I, when he refers to a fourth dose, I think he's talking about a second booster for the majority of the population. And I think it's a good opportunity to make, to make one comment. Um, booster uptake has not been great um, in the United States. And we know that the booster really um, did help prevent um, hospitalization, serious illness, and deaths. And so I think it's an opportunity to remind everybody to, if they haven't had their third shot yet, um, it's really time to get that initial booster is so important. Um, I, you know, I can speculate. I think, yes, I think we're going to need a fourth dose. And what I'm hoping is that these big pharmaceutical, com pharmaceutical companies are working on um, a vaccine that will ultimately become a yearly vaccine, just like our flu vaccine. But I don't think it's going away um, anytime soon. I'm going to ask you an unfair question, um, and that is, do you do you have any idea if um, the the first booster is as effective in an individual who had their first two shots a year ago versus somebody who had them five or six months before? Uh, I, you know, I think that's a great question and unfair. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think that you know, they, they, when they did come out with it, they did say, you know, you don't have to start over your vaccine series. You can just get your booster. So to me, that would tell me that there was confidence um, in the fact that you were getting your booster regardless of the time frame uh, in which you had your primary vaccine series. Once on the fence right now and they think too much time has passed. Okay. Definitely not. Now, now is the time um, to go get your booster if you haven't had one. And do you have any idea what the difference in dosage is between a booster dose and a, you know, a primary dose? The Pfizer doses for adults are all the same. The Moderna booster is a half dose. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they were the same. That's that's uh, an unexpected answer. So thank you. Um, sure. So obviously, uh, you know, staffing levels have been an issue for a long time, and in particular nurses. And and how many nurses approximately does the hospital employ compared to before the pandemic? You know, just rough percentage, or is it is it about the same number, or have has the hospital lost nurses net? So I think I have to answer that a couple ways. Number one, we employ nurses full-time, part-time, and then we have a group called registry who work when we need them. Um, so we have a variety of nurses because our demand for nurses goes up depending on how many patients we have in the hospital and goes down depending on when we don't need as many, have as many patients or their acuity is different. During COVID, the demand for nurses went way up because we also needed nurses to provide um, care in areas that we don't normally need as many nurses, such as in employee health, because we had to take care of our own population and screen people a lot more. We had a lot more vaccine clinics. We had a lot of things happening that we don't typically have during a normal season in the hospital. So in the winter, we usually have a lot more nurses working because of flu season or high acuity. During the summer, when uh, we don't have as many patients in the hospital, we have less nurses. Now to your question, what are we doing right now? We've had a lot of turnover in nurses, more than we ever normally have. That's for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is a lot of them decided that they are were going to take advantage of the fact that traveling and agency uh, prices for nurses skyrocketed. And so 
more than quadrupled what they were being paid. They are they and I, I don't blame nurses because it's it's a short run. They can make a lot of money, pay off some debt, and then they can find a hospital and come back. So we did lose quite a few nurses to that. We also lost nurses that were near retirement age and decided to retire early because they were burned out through this two years. Our nurses saw a lot more death than they ever saw during the worst flu season possible here. And so that amount of death, particularly of young people, was very hard on nurses, and so they decided to retire. Then our young nurses, who are just new out, don't really know nursing without all of this uh, stress that they've been under for two years. And so a lot of them are saying, why did I even get into the field and are choosing to leave the field or go to um, more of an outpatient area and not deal with the stress of the inpatient nursing. So we've had quite a bit of turnover that we don't normally have. We have had to pay a lot of money, as everybody else has, to get nurses and to keep nurses and to um, attract nurses to our organization because other organizations are suffering even more than we are and they are throwing lots of money and trying to entice our nurses to leave. We do anticipate that many of those people who left will be back. And then the last thing that's happening is, um, besides the burnout, besides being tired, um, is that a lot of people are leaving the state and nurses are moving to other states where they, um, you know, better climates, whatever the reason is, but our state does, it seems to have a lot of people leaving and nurses are part of that because they can get a job in any state. Um, it's not a problem for them. So we, we do have enough nurses uh, to manage through with the use of agency staff. We would like to not have agency staff because we think the quality of our own nurses is much better because they're very dedicated to our community and dedicated to our, our patients. Um, but we will use agency staff until we can get enough nurses back into the organization to safely uh, manage our patient population. We are still busy, even though we don't have as many COVID patients. It doesn't mean that we're an empty hospital. We, um, when we get really, really busy, we call it red census, and we've had red census off and on uh, over the last few weeks, and that's with all, all kinds of other sick patients. And so we do need nurses, and we do value our nurses, and, and are looking forward to having enough staff so our nurses can take vacation time and we can eliminate our agency staff. So I think what I heard is that when uh, I just declared the pandemic over, hypothetically, it's over, <laughs> it's over. We don't have this pandemic anymore. Um, all the agency nurses go away. You still are a little on the short side, correct? Correct. Okay. And, and obviously, you know, what you said is it's better to have your own nurses because they know the, the level of patient care that's expected and, you know, whether it's plain tree or, you know, depending on which hospital in the, in the uh, system, but uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. How about on the physician side? And, and I don't know if this is a question for Pam or Michelle, are there shortages locally? Probably either of you can take it. And are there any particular specialties that are uh, really, you know, uh, have shortages? Yeah, I think, Rich, there definitely are shortages, and I think it's probably, it probably differs where you live. Um, shortages both in 
being able to recruit, you know, quality primary care physicians as well as some of our specialists. Here particularly, I know that we struggle with um, currently the two areas I think we probably struggle pretty much with are psychiatry um, and anesthesiology. I think those are the two big ones right now that as an organization we're struggling with. And I think that, you know, I hate to say how old I am, but when I did my residency over 20 years ago, it was a very different mentality coming out of residency and coming to a new job than it is now. A lot of the training, um, you know, restrictions on hours and things like that have changed for these new residents. And so they have new expectations about what it's going to be like to work in medicine. And so I think that we are learning how to um, accommodate and be able to employ this new generation of physicians as we go forward. And I think it's going to be a learning curve, but I, I think that um, we'll, we'll get there. And I just want to say those two specialties are a problem everywhere. Every single hospital is looking for psychiatrists and anesthesiologists, and we're better off than most, and we have enough to take care of our patients. It's just a very difficult specialty right now across Illinois for sure. And then on the, on the volunteer side, I know – there was a point early in the pandemic when you really didn't want volunteers in the hospital, um, and I, I think they're back in full force. Is there still a need for volunteers? And uh, can you, if so, what is it? What's the what's the typical job of a volunteer, and how would somebody who wanted to volunteer apply? So definitely we have a need for volunteers. We have about half the number of volunteers as we had prior to COVID and all the duties that the volunteers did before COVID, we need them back to do after COVID. Uh, so they do things like they transport our patients from one place to the next. They greet and escort people to where their appointments are because you know we're a big building and sometimes it's difficult to know exactly where to go and so they will help particularly if somebody needs a wheelchair they'll wheel them to wherever they need to go and then we also use volunteers for office help we use them in our gift shops we we use them to greet people in the emergency department we use them all over the organization and so if anybody's interested in being a volunteer just go on our website you will be uh, interviewed because we do want to make sure you understand what it what's required to be a volunteer and um, but we are looking for volunteers. And uh, this next question is kind of an odd one, but I've had somebody ask me it recently. If you lose your vaccination card, your COVID vaccination card, what sort of a process can you go through to get it replaced? So I'll tell you internally here, if you received your vaccines here and you have my chart, you can actually reprint um, a very nice, uh, print out of all of the vaccines that you received. So you can print it out on paper or you can actually download it from your MyChart to your phone and keep it. I mean, I have an iPhone. You can keep it in your wallet and it's there all the time. It's easy to show when you go into venues that are requiring vaccines. If you did receive your vaccine here and lost your card and need we we can definitely assist with getting new cards or helping people navigate through the MyChart um, uh, system. And then the other thing is, if you didn't get your vaccine here, you can go to either the location where you got your vaccine, or you can contact the um, Department of Public Health, go on their website, um, and they can walk you through getting a new card. But really, I think 
most people now are not even using the paper cards or using some form of electronic um, documentation on their phones, and it's been acceptable. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting that um, they are accepting that because it's so easy to you know take a picture of somebody else's card. But um, you know, like myself, I got my first two doses at a Cook County Health Department um, facility that was temporary, and my second one at a pharmacy which will go unnamed because I'm not sponsored by anybody here. Um, but I, I would probably have to contact both of those organizations to recreate my card, so to speak, right? Well, the good news is that the vaccine information is kept in a central um, vaccine data bank. So anybody with access, anybody who was able to give a vaccine has access to that data bank and they should be able to uh you know, validate that you had your three vaccines and they should be able to update your card for you. We've read a lot about individuals who've had COVID and have lingering effects many months, if not over a year later. Um, if, if somebody feels like they have some, you know, brain fogginess or arthritis or whatever, it might be something that they didn't have pre-COVID and they kind of think it has something to do with COVID, um, I assume they should reach out to their primary care physician with that concern. But if, if they don't have a primary care physician, is there a particular specialty if their insurance allows that they should be reaching out to? We have a clinic within our neurology department that's actually a multidisciplinary clinic that um, deals with these patients. Uh, the best way to get into it is through your primary care doctor um, to then get into the, the COVID um, clinic. And, and these, um, these symptoms that some people have long-term, they're all over the board, right? They're not, they don't all typically fall into one category or is that inaccurate? All over, all over the board. Um, brain fog, headaches, persistent shortness of breath, per persistent cough, muscle aches, joint aches. Um, they really do run the whole um, spectrum. So uh, back to uh, something we talked about many months ago, and that's mental health issues, uh, do those continue to be running at higher than normal levels uh, at this point in the pandemic? Yes, um, undoubtedly. I mean, the answer is just yes. We, we know that mental health issues have taken a toll on obviously our healthcare workers who were here watching this firsthand, but then the adults in our society who were no longer able to go into their their business or they lost jobs because of COVID and then trickling down to our school age children who weren't in school for so long are now trying to play catch up. And so, yes, a great deal of mental health issues are coming out now. I, honestly, I don't think we've seen even the bulk of it yet. I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. Uh, just to, to add on to what Dr. Mazir said, the, the anxiety in adolescence is really high right now. And so there's long waiting lists now to get into any counseling for um, adolescents. I mean, for adults as well, but for adolescents, which is really uh, scary to me because adolescents are so impulsive and with very high anxiety. We worry about um, drug addiction or, um, or suicide. Those are both on the rise. Um, and we got to be very, very careful. I learned yesterday from um, somebody from Will County that looks at all the, the major 
crises that are going on in, in the medical, particularly for the underserved. And one of the drugs that they are identifying is a fake Xanax that is laced with fentanyl. I, I can't even imagine, because fentanyl can kill very easily. And if a kid thinks they're taking something that they've maybe seen their parents take or they've heard of, they think it's a legitimate pill, but it's laced with fentanyl, the risk is so high. So we are extremely worried about our adolescents right now. And, and if you notice anything, please try to get some help for for your adolescent, or at least talk to them and warn them. Make sure that they feel comfortable talking to you. I know there's probably a lot of good, safe drugs that are used to treat various mental health issues. But for those who really are, you know, don't feel comfortable taking a drug for one reason or another, especially as it relates to mental health, are there a lot of cases where where professionals can help those people, regardless of whether drugs are prescribed? Yes, in mental health, there's two ways that you can that you can help somebody, and there's actually the combination of both ways is the most most effective. So the one is medications, whether it's an antidepressant, depressant, anti-anxiety, et cetera. But the other is through a cognitive approach. So it is counseling, and and uh, cognitive therapy alone can help, and but it takes time. And a lot of times, if you combine it with and antidepressant, then then it helps give you the energy to work through the cognitive therapy or the mental health, uh, the the talk therapy, to put it plainly. So sometimes you can do both, and then eventually not even need the medications because the talk therapy has now rewired your synapses in your brain to think differently. And a lot of times it's all about the way we think, but sometimes it is a chemical imbalance that really requires medication. Well, I hope. Uh... I hope this uh, this goes away soon because I do worry about the adolescents in particular, as you said, and I didn't realize there was such a shortage of care for those adolescents and long waiting lists. That's that's a bit scary. So can you give us an update on the current visitor policy? You The last time we talked, things were opening up. Um, sounded, sounded like things were almost back to normal. Where are they now? So they've gotten even closer to normal. We have now opened up visiting to patient-directed visiting, which is our um, belief and philosophy that the patient should be the one saying how many people they want and when. The uh, the only difference is now is they do have to be 18 years or older because we are still very concerned about transmission from children. Um, we want to keep everybody safe. Uh, the other thing is there is visiting hours, which we normally don't talk about, and that's from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m., but if somebody wants somebody to stay overnight with them, one care partner is allowed to spend the night with our patients at this time. Um, the thing is, just because the world is unmasked, the hospital remains masked. So anybody who's in the hospital visiting has to keep a mask on. And if they're going to spend the night, they will be wearing a mask all night, which can be done because I did that with my mother when she was here. And I spent the night with a mask sleeping. But um, it is something that is required because we want to keep everybody, the staff safe and the patients safe. The only other uh, thing is within our uh, family birthing, labor and delivery, they have some specialized uh, visiting rules. And in some of our ambulatory areas, because the rooms might be really small, they're limiting the number of visitors so that everybody remains safe. And there are only two care partners allowed in the emergency rooms at one time. Haven't asked about finances in a long, long time. 
And I'm just curious. I know there were a lot of uh, ups and downs as it relates to the hospital's finances throughout the pandemic based on what, what point in the pandemic we were at and whether or not there was relief from the government or not. But currently, how how's the hospital doing on a month-by-month basis in terms of its finances at, at this point in the pandemic? So I think what people need to understand is in our three waves, this last wave was more than double, more than triple what any of the other waves were in the number of patients we had in the hospital with COVID. And the toll that took on our staff was enormous. And then the amount of money that we needed to spend to try to keep our staff or to have enough agency here was was much higher than in any other wave of this pandemic. And it was only six, seven weeks ago that we were at our highest point. And at Elmhurst, it was over 97, 99 patients in the hospital that had COVID. And then we still had other patients to take care of. So January and February financially do not look good. Uh, You know, when we had to pay all that money, we're still paying agencies, we're still paying premium dollars just to keep staff here as well as we all know inflation and all the products have just skyrocketed as well. So both things, of course, you wouldn't have accounted for in a budget. And then the other, the third thing that impacted us was the fact that while we were so busy with so many patients, we couldn't do um, inpatient surgeries. And inpatient surgeries really are where we are able to um, make our money so that we can take care of all the people who don't have insurance or um, where we don't make any money. So we don't get paid enough to cover Medicaid. What Medicaid pays us is less than what we would spend on a patient. What Medicare pays us is minimally just a little bit more than what we spend on a patient um, and probably less now while we have all these high costs. So inpatient surgeries are very important and, and not having them in January did impact our budget. We do anticipate that as things settle down, we'll be able to get things back under control, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen quickly because, again, inflation is going to be impacting us, and we don't get paid anything more. We Insurance companies do not give you big raises, and um, Medicare and Medicaid do not as well. So we don't get paid more money, yet um, our costs continue to skyrocket. Wow. Well, ladies, it's uh, been pretty much all good news today for the most part. Uh, I I hope that that continues. I thank you both, Pam, Dr. Mazir, and uh, let's let's hope and pray that when we talk a month from now that numbers are down even further. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter yes you heard that right nine feet in diameter this has been a special presentation of the e-town lowdown